Hi guys, welcome to Jules and Phoebe, the weekly pop culture and social commentary podcast brought to you by yours truly, Jules and Phoebe. Hey Phoebe. Hello Jules, happy Monday. How you doing? I'm good. My happy bit of news for everyone who's been listening and who's been on this braces journey with me is that I had an orthodontist patch up on Friday and the end is inside you guys. So right now I feel like I literally can't close my mouth because the braces are so tight and anyone who's had braces will probably know that feeling. But by the time that lockdown has eased, when we're all going out supposedly on the 21st of June, I will be brace free, baby. So the 21st of June is when the lockdown is over. That's when we're supposedly supposed to be able to to go out again, yeah. Like as totally normal. I mean, I say this, I have to be so transparent. I feel like as rules and things like that have kept being drip fed to us I have engaged less and less so I'll say things to my husband like oh I just want to pop down to the bookshop and he'll be like oh it's not open it's not essential but I have no personal gauge of what is essential anymore because people are going into home base and I'm like I know that that's not essential. Regardless of what the UK government is saying I'll still be erring on the side of caution and you know when I am seeing people I'll be seeing them outside I don't think I'll be doing any mass gatherings so life events don't invite me and then hopefully we can get into the summertime and like really have like a decent summer and really be at a stage where the infection rate is as down as possible that's what I'm hoping. So like essentially invite you in August but do not invite you in May. Yeah don't invite me before. (laughs) <laughs> I think when we're really in the summer, sure. But like, yeah, don't invite me before. I'm still a bit kind of sceptical about things. But yeah, I mean, I'm hoping that things are moving forward. But just an aside, right? I think we look at the UK, obviously those of us like in the UK, like it's a little bit of a drama in terms of like politics, Matt Hancock, people saying he should resign. So many weird things happening in the UK. But the real action is in Scotland, Okay, come on. The real action is in Scotland, right? So basically, Nicola Sturgeon, who's the first minister in Scotland, they're investigating her over, you know, some issues. She got into a confrontation in Parliament with the head of the Scottish Conservative Party, you know, and they were saying that, you know, basically she was criticising Nicola Sturgeon. And then Nicola was like, you are in no position to criticise me. You're in no position to lecture anyone in democracy she's going to join the house of lords this lady and she's like you are about to you know join the house of lords which is unelected so you don't have to face elections in scotland you are in no position to lecture me i was like whoa 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 Um, scotland politics is so hot in scotland and i think you know what's going on in scotland is that you know if the snp win again if they win with a really big majority you know, Nicola Sturgeon looks at it like her life's work mm-hmm. is to fight for Scottish independence, right? So what's happening in the UK is nothing. No. And actually, do you know what? I, I actually really like Nicola Sturgeon from what I see of her. Like, obviously, I'm not in the weeds of Scottish politics. And I know we've got people who listen to the podcast who are based there. So perhaps I'm, like, way off the mark here. But I feel like she really has her head screwed on. And she is... She's like Britain first, but not racist. Do you know what I mean? Her thing is whole, like, Scotland is my priority. I'm taking care of Scotland and people who live in Scotland. And yet it's like, oh, so it is possible to have that mentality, but not have it underscored with racism. That's so true. 
because she's definitely Scotland first. I really mm. like her as well. I just, I really think that she's a, she's a strong leader. And I think that she does put the Scottish people first. And I think that's important, but it's true because that sort of nationalism is usually linked with racism. And that's not the case for Nicola Sturgeon. So she's mm-hmm. definitely an anomaly there. And also the SNP. Yeah. I find them quite progressive. Oh my gosh, I know. And we're so conditioned to definitely not think of nationalist parties that way, which, you know, with due cause, because a lot of the time it is just thinly veiled racism. But, you know, I know before Christmas when, um, and this isn't like a Royals podcast, we're not changing the, the premise of this to just talk about the royal family the whole time. But when Prince William and Princess Kate went on their COVID tour before Christmas, where they basically, you know, commandeered a train and drove up and down the country, thanking frontline workers. Afterwards, you know, an email came out that Sturgeon's office had sent to Cambridge House, um, basically being like, we would strongly advise you against doing this. Please take a look at all of the rules that we've put in place about only necessary travel, traveling only if you're required to for work, da, da, da. like basically we don't want you in Scotland. There is no need for you to come up here and stand and shake the, the hands of some doctors. And I just thought it was so interesting because when Scotland originally voted for independence, it was independence but keeping the monarchy. But as time has gone on, it seems that the tide is really turning against the monarchy in Scotland which is why there had been talk about relocating um, Prince Edward and Sophie of Wessex up to Scotland to be like the Scottish royals. Oh, wow. It's worth I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So seeing how that plays out in the broader scheme of things. The Scottish friends I have don't want independence. And I don't know if that's because they are considered to be part of the elite. Like if you benefit from the current system you're not going to say oh I don't want that current system Mm. so I guess it's similar to Brexit in the sense that whatever they do vote for both sides will have to just crack on. Mm -hmm. I think it's an interesting discussion about basically what, what you just said a moment ago about patriotism and nationalism and the fine lines of that because I can always understand why a country would want its independence and were Ireland fighting for its independence now I think a lot of the same questions would be coming up like how can you afford it who's going to pay for xyz when you're able to look at something historically to a degree you're able to be like oh well yeah a hundred years ago when Ireland separated from the United Kingdom it was easy Um, but it obviously wasn't and a lot of the same issues would present themselves people say things like well how would Scotland continue to provide free third level education I don't know but whether they get freedom now or whether they get it in another hundred years or whether they never get it at all you know if we look at Scotland and obviously you know we're not Scottish and we're not experts on Scottish politics at all but like you said people always say how will they afford it how will they afford it but they could break away and they could be completely fine they could really restructure it it's funny because my husband always says when the, the topic of Scotland comes up about that third level education it's like well you know England are paying for third level education to be free in Scotland. And it comes back to something that I feel like we say a lot. Is that the case though? Well, I think that now in the peaks and troughs of the budgetary allocations, 
someone's got to be paying for it, right? But the fact is that no one in England ever seems to lobby for free third level education. To my mind, it seems like the most obvious thing. Well, if we can be providing it for Scotland, why wouldn't we be providing it for England and Wales? I would doubt that we are providing it for Scotland because I looked at a breakdown of my where my taxes were spent for like the previous tax year. Hmm. And like, there is really not that. First of all, it was crazy because the lowest amount was spent on EU related costs. So they picked the EU was like, oh my God, it's taking all of our money. No, on the breakdown on HMRC website, the lowest cost I had was EU related costs. And like education was a few steps above that. And then the number one cost was welfare related costs. So I think it's super unlikely that the UK is paying for education in Scotland to be free. I think they've obviously got taxes and things in place to make sure that tertiary education is accessible in Scotland. Well, there doesn't seem to be a a clear answer on it, obviously. Google, the the resident expert, it seems that the Scottish government pay it. So you pay your registration fees, which is very similar in Ireland, but our registration fees are lower than, they've increased since I was in university, but they're lower than you would expect to pay say if you were in England, but all universities charge fees. If you are normally resident in Scotland and have been for the previous three years, or if you are a citizen of another EU country, then the Scottish government pays the fees. So again, obviously this is like Jules and Phoebe do half arse internet research. Like <laughs> <laughs> No, but I just think it's always a people in the UK, it's like if Brexit hasn't humbled you, I don't know what else is going to humble mm-hmm. you. We have this impression that like the rest of the world is riding on our coattails. And that's not true. No, it's the issue is that it's been historically true and no one wants to. It wasn't historically true that the the rest of the world was riding on the UK's coattails. No, sorry, let me rephrase that. What I mean by that is that the UK was a superpower. Like, obviously, you were the biggest or not you, but the UK. Definitely not me. Not, nor I, um, but we're the biggest colonizers globally, you know, like what, what's the, the phrase, like the sun never set on the British Empire. Mm-hmm. And I think that some people have that mentality so entrenched that to have the wake up call, that that is not still the case, that you're not kind of revered in the same way, it must be jarring. Yeah. And also, um, colonialism is extraction. Mm-hmm. So you are extracting, right? It's not you are giving. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> it's like it's not you are paying for their education, right? True. That's not how colonialism works. Um, but you know, talking about this whole thing around you know, you did bring up patriotism, right? And we spoke about Prince Harry and Meghan on our last episode and the fact that their patronages have been taken away from them. And then like over the course of the week, I was seeing a bunch of different discussions around, you know, people saying that Harry's not patriotic or feeling like he's not patriotic. Did you catch that? I didn't catch that. I did catch the interview with James Corden. Did you see that? I didn't see the interview with James Corden. I know it happened, but what was said? So I spoke to my sister about this afterwards because she is a, a Harry and Meghan stan as well. 
And I said, you know, I've, I've always liked Harry because not to say that he hasn't misstepped because I think that he has, you know, there have been the, the Nazi costume. People always want to bring that up. The second that you mentioned Prince Harry, it's always like, oh, what about the time you wore that Nazi, Nazi costume? It's like, I don't think that's okay. I'm not excusing it. Can I proceed? But I've always liked Harry as an actual working member of the royal family. What I've never done is fancy Harry. And after this interview, I really fancied him because at some, like, it's about 17 minutes long. They're chatting, they talk about the crown, they talk about, you know, stepping back from royal duty. And I will get to that in a second. But what James Corden also did was like an assault survival course, you know, where it's like, you're crawling under the net and you're an obstacle obstacle course thing exactly and so one of the tasks was that you had to climb up a rope and ring a bell like at the top of the rope and so he did this absolutely no hassle whatsoever and obviously a lot of people forget we know academically that Harry served but you forget what that means in terms of actual physical fitness and so you've then got a young man climbing up this rope like it's nothing, one-handed, tapping the bell, shimmying back down. I made my husband watch it. I was like, you've got to see this. I, I really fancy this man. And my husband was like, do you want me to train to do this? And I was like, I think it would be really sexy if you could climb a rope. And he was like, I will never need to. And I was like, no, I know, but I would just know that you could. So <laughs> it was really worth watching in that regard. I'd love to know who else watched it and thought, oh, I fancy this man. But anyway, I digress. One of the things that he really made clear was that he was born into a life of service. And I think that's a huge criticism that's been levied at at him about, you know, walking away from the royal family. And he said, you know, whatever happens on the other side, I was born into a life of service. And this is essentially all I know. I will always be serving. I stepped back. I didn't walk away. And I thought that that was interesting because I wondered... Is there a level of education? I think sometimes you do get educated on different topics when you fall in love with someone. You touched on this last week. And as a theme throughout the podcast, we've always said walking away from toxicity, whether it's family or friends or or workplaces, is not an easy thing to do. Now there are these clips online from a Harry and Meghan's interview with Oprah. And in the clip that I saw, Harry says, you know, I'm just so happy to be here with my wife and with you, Oprah, Queen Oprah. And I can't think, I can't, you know, imagine how horrific being in the royal family was for my mum, you know, and her having to go through all of the things she went through by herself. At least we have each other. And so I think that's why I lean more on sort of having seen what happened in the past, just not wanting that history to repeat itself because Diana had severe Mm-hmm. you know, mental health issues, depression, etc., because of everything that was happening to her in that royal family. And I watched that clip and I just said, you know what, Harry, husband of the year. I don't think any of us can imagine, well, we should be able to relate to it. Like it's, like you said, it's never easy to walk away from toxic family relationships, even like toxic friendships. Mm-hmm. And I don't look at it like Harry walked away from his duty. I look at it like they were pushed out. They didn't have a choice. I don't think there was a choice. And I think a lot of the the criticism that gets follied, like all of us are trying to live our lives in the healthiest way possible. I wouldn't trade my life. I might now, now that they're living in a really nice house in Montecito and they're just venture capital investing and chatting to Oprah and whatever the case may be, because people have rallied around them. But I wouldn't have traded my life for 
Meghan or Harry's when they were living. I, To be honest, as lazy as I think she is, I wouldn't trade my life for Kate Middleton's because I think that she's got an absolutely rotten existence as well. Like, she's not doing very much, so all she has is time to think about it. But when we play this game of comparing, you know, and women are always the losers in these comparative games, but we've not seen Kate Middleton since the first week in February. Oh, I didn't even see her then. No, I mean, I, like I said, like I've said before, I follow this stuff, so I know it. She did. Where was she? She did three Zoom events. But what happens is that they get drip fed out. So we're still talking. In fact, actually, I I tell her, I think she did something on Friday. But imagine getting to work three days a month and for people to be like, oh, God, she's our future, future queen. (laughs) Future, future queen consort, Kate. Who do you think are the winners and losers from all of this? Because I think that Harry and Meghan are the winners. I think that they are the winners now, but that is because they changed the rules. They weren't Mm -hmm. meant to be the winners because the idea was that they were never supposed to leave because we're all supposed to think that this is such a coveted position that why would you ever not want to be a part of it? But... This idea even of the royals as dedicated to a life of service, what does that mean? Like, my life is in no way enriched by anyone within the royal family. And it's so insane that that could be... Yeah, isn't your life... You follow them. You don't find no. them enriching your life? No. I, I do follow them. And I'm so interested in the jewels and fashion, and I genuinely am. But... The idea that they are benefiting me in any real way. The Queen could end child poverty, food poverty, with a click of her fingers. She's sitting on at least 88 billion of inherited wealth. And we talk about taxing people like Jeff Bezos, who, don't get me wrong, should be taxed. But we're not talking about taxing the Queen. Remember when all of the Panama Papers came out and it was about how the super, super elite wealthy were hiding all of their money so successfully. We all found out about it. We all read it. And literally, the only thing that happened was that the author of that piece died in mysterious circumstances. And then we just all went back to living our lives. Yeah, no, it's true. I do remember that. And I think the point you've made is so important around, like, they weren't meant to be the winners, but they basically changed the rules. And I think that's really a nice segue to kind of the main topic of today. We're recording on the 1st of March. We have International Women's Day around the corner. And I wanted to take the time to kind of focus on like women in work. Mm -hmm. And I was watching because I'm obsessed with Dave Ramsey. I've talked about it on the podcast before, but I was watching a clip of Dave's show and someone called in and she was saying that I'm paid below the average salary for my role. I really want to have a conversation about this, you know, so that I can get a pay rise. The other factor to take into consideration is that I'm paid below average for my organization, but my company pays above market rate for the area that I live in what should I do and I thought we could answer that question on the show and I just felt that he was also the person responding to this question was just giving such bad advice so should I tell you his advice or do you want to say your point of view first I want to hear the advice but one thing that I do want to say before we get into what I would give as my advice is that when we talk about winners and losers like I said before women are always the losers here because we are not taught to speak about money without shame. 
and women and financial literacy and women and financial confidence is like taboo absolutely taboo and I was really irritated by the advice that was given right it was obviously difficult for this woman to she clearly doesn't know how to manage the situation which is why she's calling up you know this radio show to get advice and then Ken Coleman one of the guys on the Ramsey show told her oh, you know what your manager's a person too you know don't blindside them by just having an impromptu conversation around your salary and you know what I hate when people make this a money conversation you should really talk about wanting to grow and say you know if I can grow then eventually this should be reflected in my compensation and just yeah really try to not make this about money but about the fact that you want to grow in this organization on the face of it that's not bad advice right I feel that it's really important to focus on the value that you bring the challenge I have is that this lady is already in the role she's already executing in this role and she's being paid below the mean Mm-hmm. So she's being paid below average for a role that she's doing based on her company's compensation policies. And then he's putting the onus on her to make everybody comfortable with her having a conversation about this. Ding, 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 ding. As in correct answer, Jules. Like it is not, yes, okay, it's fine to have generic, what value can I bring for longer term I'm happy with my salary now, but I want to know where my salary is going to be in the next two, three, five years. But if I know that I'm being paid less than the mean, and I know that there are other people on the team doing the same work as me, being paid more, it is a money conversation. It's not a conversation about anything else. And I've been in that situation. And I think that there's nothing more demoralizing. What you have to take into account as well is it is actually embarrassing to find out that you're being paid less than other people because it is human nature to already think that okay there must be something wrong here I've missed something I must not be doing it that happened to me in a role I found out my male counterpart was being paid more than me he was very transparent about it and he was like yeah if you need to have this conversation just so you know this is how much I'm being paid and it was a senior woman on the team who said to me you need to stop making this about gender the fact is I had to convince them to hire you No, you didn't. I'm really good at my job. And it doesn't come easily to me to say that because it doesn't come easily to most women to be like, yeah, I'm good. And it was an immediate deflection. People sometimes act like your salary is coming out of their pocket. It is not. And I think about this woman on my team frequently. And I think about her being like, I had to convince them to hire you. That three grand, because that's all it was, the discrepancy between my pay and this guy's pay, was not coming out of her salary and no one in the organization was thanking her for saving them three grand. But it's this kind of, I can't think of a better word for it, so I'm just going to say bootlicker mentality of ingratiating yourself with senior members of the team by saving them a few quid. Somebody else is going to pay you more. Like My advice to that woman would have been to bide your time and find another job. I don't know what yours would have been though. We've all internalized this idea that women are are worth less Mm -hmm. so we've just internalized that you know women feel that way about women it's not just men that feel that way so it doesn't really matter about the gender of the person that you're speaking to I don't think that indicates kind of where they stand on pay equality so firstly it's really important for you to advocate for yourself and my advice would be to go and have this conversation I don't know if it's good advice 
But I would basically say my understanding is that I'm paid less than the mean. I really enjoy working here. Highlight some of your successes that you've had and ask them, what is the path to parity for me? What does that look like? I'm not going to come into this conversation and say, I want to grow. I'm willing to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G. If I don't even know that that's going to get me to the mean. Also, I'm clearly already doing A, B, C, D, E because you've not fired me. I'm not on warning. I'm clearly performing or else I wouldn't feel confident to even bring this conversation to a third party talk show, like radio show. Whatever. <laughs> um, you will, as you said, have already gone through the mental checklist of, OK, well, this could be their counterpoint. Mm-hmm. So I'm already doing my, excuse my language, my fucking job. It's actually on you now to justify why you aren't paying me. But one thing that I was taught, one of my first jobs was in recruitment when I first graduated. It was abysmal and I have so much respect for anyone who is able to actually succeed and sustain themselves within recruitment because it is such a draining position. But one of the things that we would say to clients is that if you have had to negotiate your way into a pay rise with your current employer, as in like this woman having to wheedle and cajole and negotiate her way into parity it doesn't mean anything because you're just going to have to keep doing that on an ongoing basis move to somewhere where they see your value from the get-go and so pay reviews are happening organically on an annual or biannual basis but I don't believe it I just I think if we look at when the whole gender pay gap issue came to light a couple Mm. of years ago you had really senior established successful women at the BBC that are being paid significantly less than their counterpart and that happens because clearly there wasn't enough transparency around people's salaries right Mm -hmm. so you can even you can go into the best organization that bangs on and on about equality from what I see from the conversations I have with women negotiating your worth and advocating for yourself is baked into the job I've rarely come across an example of somebody just giving a woman a pay rise and when those pay rises just happen randomly a lot of the time it's because you've been paid less like mm-hmm. you've been paid less than the mean and adjustment has taken place so I think another piece of advice from me would be really get comfortable with advocating for yourself it doesn't matter if you're in the best organization this is a part of the daily work Just as you were talking there, I was reminded of another lesson that I got, whether or not you take my first lesson of recruitment with you. In my first job, there was a woman called Deborah Longstaff, who was the best. She was absolutely unbelievable. And I struggled with it a lot. I found it really difficult. And she used to say, like, call me mummy Debs. And she was always available to, you know, for any kind of counsel or anything like that. She used to have a thing that she would say, when you're having difficult conversations, it's called H-O-G, hand over gob. Say what you came to say and then stop talking because women in particular always try to fill the silence. They don't want there to be any awkward silence hanging in the air and they overcompensate for it. So if you're negotiating in this instance, whatever it was, a a higher percentage for a, a placement fee, Or in the instance where you're negotiating parity with your peers, say what you came to say, state your facts and then stop speaking. 
And don't be afraid of that silence because that is something that I still am, you know, uncomfortable with. But there's power in it. Yeah, don't be afraid of that silence and just be prepared to have the same conversation over and over and over again. There is nothing wrong with having a conversation around compensation. You spend so much time at work. There is absolutely nothing wrong with having clarity on you know, where you stand in comparison to your colleagues, right? And then if you find out that you're being paid less, there needs to be a plan to get you to the get you to average. What I think is sometimes people are afraid of, and I say this because I know that it's such an irrational thought, but I know that people do think of it. If Paul is being paid more than me and I find out about it, if I say something, they're not going to decrease Paul's salary. They can't. No money is going to be taken from Paul to give it to me. They will have to free up that money elsewhere. But I think that people in general are so afraid of being perceived as a nuisance or damaging somebody else's salary that it's like, oh, let me keep myself to myself and not rock the boat. But you have got bills to pay. You're saving for a mortgage. You're saving for whatever, a nice holiday, a wedding. I don't care. You don't need to justify why you deserve the extra money. You deserve it if that's what other people are being paid. You also deserve to be compensated for your work and your knowledge and your time. I think compensation should be around the role and the value that you bring. And I think it all starts with you being confident because they're not going to reduce your salary either. (laughs) If you have the conversation, they're not going to reduce your salary. So it's important for you to kind of step up, be willing to have that conversation, do it in a nice way. Like, take all that anxiety out of your mind. Do it in a way that's cool, calm and collected. Like you said, get all the information that you need. Like, listen, you know, understand, get all the information that you need. And then if there's no path forward for you, then, of course, you look at other opportunities. And again, I don't know how many people will be listening to this and be like, oh, my God, this is such good timing. This is going on for me at the moment. But it is so possible to have that initial conversation in a very positive, breezy light way because you are just genuinely trying to understand there might have been something you missed if I go in and I say I just want to make sure that I'm fully on the same page here Paul mentioned or it came up I've heard and I'm just trying to make sure that I know what is lacking because as far as I'm aware I've done ABC and I'm hitting my KPIs and there haven't been any complaints so I just want to make sure that I'm fully up to speed with everything that's going on. And past that point, obviously, it potentially becomes a different kind of discussion. But you have to be, I think, sometimes prepared to also walk away if that conversation doesn't go the way you wanted it to. As an anecdote, I don't know if I'm allowed to share this. Hopefully, you won't get in trouble. As an anecdote, in my situation, I ended up getting the salary increase and I also ended up getting back paid for the difference. But they told me it was a goodwill gesture. Is that even though we stand by the difference in pay, you know, he, he was a more experienced candidate, he was not. We still think it's a goodwill gesture. We don't want you to think that there was anything kind of untoward in the pay discrepancy. So we've decided to boost your salary and give you back pay for the past 11 months. Yeah, that's the best outcome because they're not going to say to you, we were wrong. We were right. actually being very sexist and you've caught us. <laughs> exactly. You know, that conversation won't happen. But I think you basically had the best outcome where you were able to get back pay as well. And I've heard of that happening to both male and female 
mm-hmm. employees, right? Just because this doesn't only apply to women. You can be a man in a role and you can be paid less than your colleagues as well. So this is a conversation that everybody should be having. I think you made a really good point about, you know, your colleague being really transparent with you. You know, and when I've been in situations where I wanted to get a bit more information around salaries, you know, it's been male colleagues that have been like supportive and have been like, Jules, this is the tea, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> and giving me the information. So that's why, even though it's personal to you, like you are a cog in a machine, right? The company is not personally going after you. So you have to try to make this not personal if you mm-hmm. can, even though it feels personal. And find allies in the organization that you can speak to, that you can engage with, so you can get a really clear picture as to what's going on. You can reach out to HR as well and have these conversations. That's their job. Like they're there to supply you with information around this. Yes. Although what I would say is that sometimes in those situations, remember that HR works for the company. They don't work for you. And I know that sounds like (laughs) such an ominous thing to say. This is from a place that I used to work. And basically, we received an email to say that end of year bonuses would be lower than everyone had expected because of, you know, an upcoming sale within the company, selling off the company. So obviously, everyone's understandably upset. You know, if you're working in a bonus or commission focused industry, it doesn't matter how much you're told bonuses are at the discretion of the company. That is money that you start to factor in, right? It's money, it's a reward for your hard work. So in this instance, we received the email, we were told that bonuses would be lower than expected. As it happened, completely serendipitously, I managed in my book of clients, the law firm for the organization as a whole. And as probably a lot of people will already know, but for those of you who don't work in that kind of an industry, a lot of the times within organizations, you'll have the kind of system in place which tags all incoming and outbound emails to a particular platform so that you've got a documentation all in one place, even if the employer themselves leaves the organization. So I ended up seeing emails to our law firm organized by our COO and CEO facilitating a shooting weekend for basically the top partners at each of the advisories that our firm worked with. So whatever it was, let's say it was placement agent, law firm, auditor, whatever the case, all expenses paid, shooting weekend, the email itself was arranging the private drivers, asking, do you need us to rent your guns for you? Do you have your own shooting equipment? Here's where you'll be staying. Please let us know what you would like to have for dinner that evening. And easily, 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 this weekend had cost 100 grand. And 100 grand isn't going to pay for everyone's bonuses within a large organization. But you would be a hell of a lot closer to giving people the bonuses that they deserved. But actually, that 100 grand, whatever it was, minimum, had been mentally allocated for somebody else because you are just a cog in the machine. So don't feel guilty about asking for what you're worth. Yeah, don't feel guilty about asking for what you're worth. And don't be too disheartened if you don't get the outcome that you expect. Trust me, somebody else will pay you it. But it's, I think for me, it's been challenging because I speak to a lot of women about this specific issue. And what I've figured out, and I don't know if it's everyone in general, but I think that women tiptoe around this so much that I think women just have less information. So a lot of the time, 
it's very, very rare to speak to a woman and she knows the salary range for her role. I actually would really agree with that. And I think one of the, the things that I would add to it is the first time you have that conversation, it's uncomfortable. But the second, third, fourth, it literally gets easier every time. And you said something last week um, when we were talking about Meghan Markle about the idea that people should be happy with crumbs. If you're a biracial woman marrying into the royal family, why would you be kicking up a fuss? Because you're lucky to be here. And that's a lot of the time people's big issue with Meghan Markle. She wasn't overwhelmed with gratitude that they had allowed her to marry Harry. She just saw herself as their equal. And a lot of the time, women are expected to be happy with what they are on. Particularly if you have had a salary increase, right? In my last role, I had a salary jump. And in a lot of ways, mentally, it's made me feel that I'm not in the best position to negotiate because they already know I've had a jump from my last role. So there's the attitude of like, well, surely you're happy. You're already on X. Why would you need Y? And I'm not saying that my organisation have ever said that. They haven't. But mentally, you get yourself into that headspace where you think, well, maybe I should just be happy with what I have. I'm able to pay my bills and I'm able to save at the moment. And that's great if you are, but you should also feel empowered to say, listen, this is what I believe I deserve because this is what you're giving other people, particularly in those instances, right? There may be reasons why people are paid above the mean, right? They may bring some uh, specialist experience. They may have relationships that the company is able to benefit from. They may have been doing the role a lot longer, et cetera. There are variables, so I'm not against there being a range, but I definitely have an issue with so many women being paid below average and then just feeling hopeless. It's like, it's quite sad, especially when you think about, you know, this is happening at all levels in roles that are considered professional. So what about in other types of roles where women find it even harder to advocate for themselves? Also, just linking back to this conversation on the Ramsey show, they were then talking about like somebody was going to interview for a role in for like a a coffee shop. Or he gave the example of, oh, if you're interviewing at a coffee shop, you know, when is the best time to ask for salary? And then Ken is like, oh, yeah, you should never ask what the salary is, never ask what the salary is. And then Dave is like, so you're going to go through all these interviews and you're not going to ask the salary. And then Ken is like, well, you should go in and have an idea. You know, and I think all of us go in and we have this idea and then we negotiate based on our idea. And then, you know, maybe do some additional research as well. But that is not the equivalent of hearing that from the horse's mouth. Totally. You can't go in with your own assumptions. You can end up pricing yourself out of the bracket negatively. So actually, one thing that I read recently, a good response to that question of what are your salary expectations is that you say, I'm flexible for the right role, but it would be good to know what the range is. Because if the range is 85 to 110k per annum, and I go in and I say I'm expecting 70, they've saved themselves potentially 35 grand if I fall slap bang in the middle. Do you know what I mean? So don't say it don't give them that information immediately I don't understand why you'd be not asking you're just hoping to get a pleasant surprise when the first paycheck hits oh thank god that was 15 dollars an hour or it's once you get your offer I guess what a waste of your time absolute waste of your time it's weird how we associate 
being money focused and financially literate in women as a negative trait and obviously you don't want to be someone who's like oh money never sleeps like this isn't Wolf of Wall Street but men are allowed to be financially literate and it's just them being career driven and future focused why is it only negative when women are those things okay we but, but also men just volunteer this information a lot more so you'll be hanging out with the lads and you will find this information a lot of the time you don't need to go and burn the house down to find out what the salary range is that information has been volunteered to you if you work in a sector that is male dominated chances are if you're going into this organization and you've been in the industry for a while you have got more mates in that organization, you have got someone that you can have a really transparent conversation with. It's just so difficult. It's super difficult. It's super difficult because also, and I'm not trying to be super negative here, but it ties back to our last episode before Christmas, where we said women are already having to navigate so many different barriers to success. And Actually, this morning, my husband and I were talking about the different milestones that you experience in your life, you know, and the different kind of things that that we put emphasis on. It tends to be buying a house, getting engaged, getting married, having children. You know, I said that there were a lot more people excited when Charles and I got engaged than when I got the place on my MBA, which is natural to a degree. But, you know, it's it's endemic. In that context, we were talking about, you know, having children and where that fits into a timeline plan because I need to have a timeline plan because of my career and the the energy that I want to be able to devote to my career. And my husband was saying that close friends of his had a plan called when is the least shit time to have a baby? Because as the female partner in that relationship, she had to think about, well, when can I afford to take approximately a year off from my career while also knowing that longer term my status as a mother in the workplace will be more negatively perceived than my partner's role as a father it's always seen as a plus when a man has kids it's a huge drawback when a woman has kids and obviously you don't want to be going into that negative mindset when having children you don't want to be like this absolute albatross around my neck but it is unfortunately facts. So you need to start believing in your own value because if you don't, it means that you're A, less able to have those important financial conversations and B, it means that you are way less likely to believe that I deserve to be here, right? There are so many things to think about. And also when you talk about the pay gap, there's so much discussion about this on LinkedIn and everywhere but something that I don't see enough focus on is the ethnicity pay gap. It compounds and it compounds and it compounds. The way you advocate for your customers, the way you advocate for your colleagues, you should be able to advocate for yourself. Totally. And something else I think is really important in this process is, you know, you do catch more bees with honey than you do with, what's the other thing? (laughs) Is it vinegar? They say you catch more bees with honey than with, it's you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar, yeah. Is it vinegar? Yeah. You catch more flies with honey than vinegar? Yeah. Okay, okay cool. <laughs> but basically, you catch more flies with honey. And so 
that's why it's really important for you. If you need to be coached through this process, like if you need to speak to someone who's gone through that process before, someone that can support you and guide you. And I do that when I have really difficult conversations, I always like reach out to people that I know that I can trust and it helps take the edge off that conversation. And it's important for you to kind of build relationships with people who are in that room when those conversations are happening, you know, when they're talking about the promotions, when they're talking about the salary rises, when they're going through the names and you're below the mean, somebody needs to speak up on your behalf. With things like this, I think that we also put so much pressure on ourselves to be almost emotionless. Like the worst thing when you get into the room is upset. But it is also okay if you get upset. I think about this woman finding out that she's being paid below the mean. That is upsetting. And I don't want to be like, don't let that get the better of you because it's impossible to not let that play some kind of a role in how you're feeling. You would feel undervalued, underappreciated and embarrassed because you think, oh, how many people have known that this is what I'm being paid, you know, without allowing that to kind of fuse and have that snowball effect, but to actually be like, has everyone been feeling sorry for me? (laughs) And there's a line between mastering that emotion and masking that emotion. You're allowed to be upset, but also don't be so upset that they don't take you seriously. You're right. Yeah. A bullshit thing to have to say. And so if anyone's listening to this and being like, oh, that's easier said than done, I actually completely agree. But I just think it's neutralizing yourself, making yourself devoid of all feeling in those conversations is not the right call either. Because if you keep bottling it up, it will spill out at some point, but it will spill out at the most inopportune moment. Yeah, you're actually so right. And I was having a similar conversation with someone and they were saying that when they were more emotional, they felt that the person that they were speaking to took them a bit more seriously. So when they approached it in a way where they were less sanitized about it and they showed the actual impact that this was having on them, that it was well received. So it's really important for you to kind of understand the stakeholders that you're working with and try to like make a plan. But being paid the same for the same work should be a ruthless priority. Absolutely. It should be your mission. We talked about Nicola Sturgeon's mission and how she wants to bring independence to Scotland. Pay parity should be your mission. There should be no scenario where it's acceptable that you're paid less for the same work. You have to speak up for yourself. That's the first step because there's no white knight that's coming to save you in this this situation right and so we would love to hear from you like if you have had these challenging conversations around your remuneration and you've got some tips or you just want to share your experience with us we'd love to hear from you so follow us you know on at Jules Phoebe on Instagram share the podcast with a friend share the podcast with a friend and I think just as a final note obviously mentioned that over Christmas I ended up being in Ireland for a bit longer just by virtue of my family and I being sick and actually one evening I was having this conversation with my dad about saving and pensions and you know like the fear around it because I am now the age that my parents were when they had me I'm 29 this year they had me when they were 29 and um, I was thinking I don't feel old enough to be responsible for a child I don't feel like who would allow that I can't believe that if I had a baby someone would just let myself and my husband leave the hospital it like it's insane to me and he was saying you know we felt that way when we had you 
we also felt that way when we bought our first house. We didn't buy our first house until we were 37, which was old, particularly in Ireland, like where people get on the property ladder quite young. It was like, you know, everyone was doing it. So I guess basically my point is, even when you're an adult, you don't feel like you're an adult. Everyone who you think is having these conversations so easily is still learning as well. So if you ask for help, you will be surprised who comes back and says, yes, I went through this too. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys. Bye. Bye.